Amen. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Well, I said this last service and I said again, that is the best news that I could hear right now. That right now Jesus is interceding for us. Right now the Spirit is with us. And so with that, uh, how can we lose? So uh, if you have your Bible, I hope you do begin to work your way to the book of, of Acts. Acts chapter 4 is where we're at. If you're just joining us, welcome to the worship of God at Redemption Parker. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, which is the story of the church that launched at, on Pentecost when Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we said that verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 becomes the thesis verse for the book of Acts, but more than that, it becomes the thesis verse for us. See, the book of Acts is our story. It's not just we're reading about some people. These are our family members. These are our brothers and sisters. We're looking at how the God of the universe intervened with them and intervenes with us. Their mission is our mission. We know that it's going to be accomplished. We know that it is being accomplished because we're here, right? 2,000 years later on a different continent, speaking a different language. We don't look like Jesus, and yet we worship him because this thing has spread because the promise is true. Uh, last week, I had the privilege of going to the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis, and it was a great conference, uh, great speakers. The whole conference was focused on this idea of recur- recovering in the Christian life, a personal evangelism, personally, each person taking this responsibility in Christ to share the gospel. And uh, of course, they kept David Platt for very last. And David, as David is known for doing, uh, just gets up there and passionately just lays out a call to the Christian to share the gospel. So I'm fired up in this moment. I'm ready to go, but I'm surrounded by eight thousand Christians in this moment. So I'm like just itching to get rolling. And, and so uh, we're, we're going to the airport. Uh, we were with Ryan and Lauren Fee and, and I get an Uber and I'm like, uh-uh, you better watch out. And so I, I order it up and I see my driver's name come up, Meng. I'm like, Meng, you better buckle up because uh, I'm going to share the gospel with Meng. I'm going to show these people in the backseat how to do it. And so... Um, Meng pulls up, and uh, we get in there and uh, start talking with Meng. He's got an accent, so that's like, hey, where are you from? And I'm like trying to build into this, and Meng's like, oh, I- I'm from Burma, uh, from Myanmar. And I just smiled, because one, I thought, Meng, you're a Christian, aren't you? Yeah, I am. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to do evangelism, but tell me about that, man. He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and uh, my, my family's Christian. In fact, there's lots of us. We came here about 20 years ago as refugees. Uh, there, there's several Burmese Christian churches in Indianapolis, and so we just have this great Christian community, and the people group I'm from, they're like all Christians, and, and I'm like, yeah, of course they are, because Acts 1-8 is true, uh, but, but then I also thought I was just smiling, because I was like, like, man, you know, Mang, 206 years ago, there were no Burmese Christians. Uh, the gospel had not reached there yet. But it reminded me of one of my top five heroes of church history, Adeniram Judson. Adeniram Judson was the first American to say, man, this gospel is global. I'm going to take it from American soil, and I'm going to go across an ocean, across a culture, across a language barrier, and I'm going to, because of the name and renown of Jesus is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to do it in Burma. 
And so him at 24 years old and his new wife, Anne, uh, at 23 years old, they, they get on the ship and they go and they first stop in India and they spend some time with William Carey. If you don't know who William Carey is, he's kind of the father of modern missions. He was the one that was like, hey, church, we haven't really done this for several hundred years. Let's do this again. So he took the gospel to India and began to do amazing work there. But when, when Adinaram and Anne got to him and told them their plans, even William Carey was like, Mm, I, I don't know about that. Burma? They're like, what are you talking about? You, the, the gospel wasn't in India before you came, but yeah, we want to go to Burma. He's like, well, some have tried and died and others have left and there's no one there and there's no Christians there. I'm not sure Burma's the place for you to go. He's like, well, I, I'm going. And so they, they get and they, they go there and at, at just great, great, great cost for the next 39 years, Adinaram would lay down his life for the sake of the name of Jesus among the Burmese people. Great costs. His wife, Anne, would, would die in the jungles of, of all the diseases that were there. He would marry again, whose, uh, the, his other wife, her husband was a missionary. He, he had died, and so they, they married. Uh, of Adinaram's 13 kids, seven of them died in Burma. Adinaram went back one time after 33 years uh, to, to spend a few months back in New England before he headed back. I mean, just incredible costs, incredible opposition, incredible persecution. At one point, he was arrested for 17 months and, and kept in a cage outside. And at night, they would come and tie his ankles and hang him up by his ankles. And he would sleep on his head and his shoulders. And his pregnant wife, Anne, would, would come and, and bring food and water each day and plead with the emperor to let him go because they thought he was a spy for the West. But they persisted and they per persevered. And after six years, six years, they finally had one Burmese person say, yeah, I'll trust Jesus. And they went down and baptized him. But it wouldn't be for a total of 19 years before there was any kind of spiritual traction in the land. 19 years laboring, 19 years wondering, is this even going to work? At, at one point, uh, someone from the American Mission Board sent him a letter kind of uh, discouraged by the results. And, and in the letter, they, they asked the dinner room, and said, what are the prospects of the heathen in that land? And the dinner room wrote back, no, no converts, no anything at this point. But the dinner room wrote back, the prospects are as bright as the promises of God. Because the dinner room believed, Acts 1.8. Then believed Revelation where it says people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather before the throne. And then Dinneram believed that there will be Burmese people that will gather before the throne. And as he labored there at great, great cost with great persecution and great opposition, eventually people began to come. And they would come and they would travel hundreds of miles. Well, at one point, they, uh, he wrote about how uh, they would come. They would say, sir, we have seen a writing that tells about eternal, an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? He would write these gospel tracts. As so, pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. 6,000 people found him in his house in Burma to ask for these tracts. And by the time he laid down his life, thousands of Burmese had become Christians. Now, 200 years later, the reason why I just suspected Meng was a Christian is because there are over 4,000 churches in Myanmar and Burma. It's a closed country. You and I could not go there, but the church is thriving there. There's over 2 million Burmese Christians because Acts 1-8 is true. 
But, but with Adinaram and, and what we're going to see here and, and with us, that it doesn't mean it won't be without cost. If you're just exploring uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ, we're glad you're here. We think this is a great place for you to explore that. But, but Jesus is very clear. It is costly to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. But Jesus says, look, it may cost you everything, but it's worth it. Oh, it'll be worth it forever. But it's costly. And it's not going to be easy. And opposition is going to come. Persecution is going to come. In fact, that's what we're going to begin to see in the passage today. And today is going to be the first persecution of the church. But it has not stopped since this day. Uh, oh, it's worse in other parts of the, of the world right now. But, but even in our own culture, we see kind of a shift. We see uh, uh, moving from kind of the center, center of culture to the margins of culture. And, and that which has been taught and believed for 2,000 years is now being questioned as, as suspect uh, in terms of just uh, basic ethics and marriage and otherwise. And so what do we do in this moment? Well, first of all, you should take heart. Just if you, This is why we study church history. Whenever the church has been pushed to the margins, whenever the church has been squeezed, then, then the work of God comes out even more powerfully and more clearly. So as a church planner, I'm excited about this moment in America that it seems to be increasingly hostile to our, towards our faith. As the darkness comes on the land, the light of the gospel gets brighter. And so this is a tremendous opportunity. But how shall we respond? Christians throughout history have kind of chosen one of three options when, when things get tight. Uh, well, one is just to kind of uh, withdraw. When, when things get really bad, we could just withdraw and, and kind of protect ourselves, encourage one another. And in some ways that helps because at least we got these people that are on our side. But, but again, I don't think that's faithful to the mission. I don't think it's faithful to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So I don't think withdrawal is an option. So the other option is to say, well... What can, we, what can we present to the culture that they'll still accept? And so we drop off different ideas and different ethics, and we say, we're just going to talk about Jesus. But, but the churches and denominations that have gone that route inevitably always end up losing even Jesus. Because at a certain point, Jesus is offensive. The cross is offensive. That he shed his blood for your sin. At a certain point, you're either going to say that or you're not. And so people compromise and eventually give up the faith altogether. I don't think either one of those options are, are, are faithful options. In fact, I think the only option that we have is laid out here by the first disciples when persecution and oppression began to squeeze in on them. I, I think it's the option that, that we got to pray for, that we got to beg God for, that we got to cling on to, and that is just a bold faithfulness. We're not necessarily known at this moment in history as an American church, as being bold. There's not a, a boldness to, to go no matter what the cost. And yet the Spirit will delight to give that to us if we ask Him. That's what I see in this passage. So let's, let's begin to work our way there. So far, uh, we, as I mentioned, so far, so far in the church history, things have been going well. Jesus was resurrected. He appeared for over 40 days. And then he said, uh, you're going to get power when the Spirit comes on you. And then in chapter 2, that happens. The Spirit comes on the believers and it just rocks the house. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel. It, it meets people where they're at. He tells the truth about them, saying, you're, you're not awesome. In fact, uh, you're, you're really in rebellion to God. But there's a way to salvation. His name is Jesus. And 3,000 people on that day get saved. 
And, and then they live out the gospel in tangible ways saying, God, God is real. Uh, the life is going to be lived forever in his presence. And so let's live like that now. And God continued to add to their number daily those that were being saved. And, and then in chapter 3, last week we saw Matthew was preaching. Uh, they're going into the temple to gather with the saints again. And as they're going, they see a man that was born lame. And it says, Peter got down and, look, and said, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. He says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And, and this guy does what you would do if you were like that for 40 years. And all of a sudden, you felt the power of God and the strength of God fill your legs. He gets up. And the scripture says, he doesn't just get up and walk. He gets up and he starts hopping around. He's like, yes, look at this. And like, jump up, jump up and get down. He's got it. He's got it rocking. And, and so people are like, what's going on? on and and they see the guy that was born lame and they're like look at this check this out he's he's hopping around he's praising God obviously God's at work here and they begin to worship God as a crowd saying that something's up God's at work and the crowd is just kind of roaring and Peter he takes he takes an opportunity again he's like hey let me tell you something and I love it. His sermon in chapter 2 is, is much like sermon in chapter 3. Just tells me as a preacher, I can preach the same message and you need to hear it again and again. He basically says, hey, look, God's going to meet you where you're at. You're not awesome, but Jesus is. Put your faith in him and you'll find salvation. And the crowd is like, yes, let's do that. And as they're listening to them, persecution begins to break out. Oh, it's going to be light, but it'll, it'll ramp up in a few moments. And, uh, but... We see this in chapter four where this starts. And so as we put our eyes on the text, let me just pray for us once again, understanding that this is a holy moment. Father, as we come to your word now, in the name of your son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would in fact do that which you can only do. Lord, this word was given not for our information but for our transformation. Holy Spirit, you know every person here. You know those that have been rescued and redeemed and those that you are uh, appealing to in the gospel. May it be evident that this all-surpassing power is from you and not from us in this moment as we encounter you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as they're preaching, now persecution breaks out. Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain and the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So, so, so they've arrested them. They're, they're dragging them off. But look at verse 4. And don't just read the Bible as a newspaper account. Don't read it indifferently. Like, put yourself in the scene. So great crowds are, are gathered. G Peter has stood up. He's proclaiming the gospel. And, and then verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, this is ridiculous. I mean, it, it's Peter and John are literally being arrested. They're, they're, they're getting their hands tied behind their back. And Peter is still preaching, getting dragged off. And he's like, you want some of this? And 5,000 people are like, yes, yes, we want some of that. Like, it's insane. Like, who's signing up for that? Who's saying, yeah, I want to be arrested too. But the Spirit of God has fallen on 5,000 men and, and probably another 10,000 women and children. I, like, it is, it is blowing up in this moment. 
because the Spirit's at work, and they get dragged off, and they spend a night in jail. Verse 5, on the next day, the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. You may recognize some of those names from the gospel accounts. These are the same men who, who had Jesus marched before them, and they said, Jesus, you're worthy of death, and not just any kind of death. We want you to be tortured. We want you to suffer. We want you to die on a cross, and they handed him over. These are the same men. So what you need to hear in this is that the, the situation is serious, and, and it would be serious for you and for me. Like, Peter and John, they love their family like you love your family. They love their friends like, they love, like you love your friends. And just a few weeks ago, when they saw Jesus go through this, what happened? Peter denies Jesus three times. They cower in the upper room, wondering if the authorities were going to come from him. They had no courage. They had no boldness. But now something's changed. Of course, it's the Spirit of God. And this is the first point. The Spirit delights to empower gospel faithfulness. So, so we all need boldness. The Spirit loves to give that. So we're going to see the Spirit loves to give us boldness if we'll simply ask him. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is a phrase that recurs throughout the book of Acts. In Scripture, we know that when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives you new life, takes up residence in your life. But, but there is times where we are filled with the Spirit for the purposes of God. And the purposes of God are to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel. You will receive power to be my witnesses. Do you know what the word for witnesses is in the Greek? <laughs> Martyrios. We get the word martyrs from. Because in church history, there is a connection between witnessing to Jesus and dying for Jesus. And so Jesus says, you'll be my martyrios when the Spirit comes on you. And Peter is a different man. John is a different man. And now they're filled with the Spirit again. And so when, whenever someone's filled, but buckle up. It's, it's something cool is about to happen. It says, he says, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today... Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? I love that because do you hear the sarcasm? Like he's spirit filled and he's still sarcastic. I just love that. He's like, really? You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna arrest me because this guy's walking around now? That's what you're upset about? Peter's like, okay, but I'm still gonna get to the gospel. He says, let it be known to all of you and to, to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's like it was Jesus, and you killed him, and then God rose him from the dead, and so that's, that's how this is happening. That's offensive to them. I mean, after all, these guys are the ones responsible for putting Jesus to death, but, but, but Peter's going to up the offense. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The kingdom of God is going to advance on the cornerstone that is Jesus, and you were the leaders of God's people, and you've rejected that, so your authority has been taken away. It's shifted to the church. That's offensive. But, Jesus, but Peter's going to bring the ultimate offense in verse 12. 
says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, so this is offensive to the Jews because they, they, they believe that they have the authority from God, they have the, the law, and, and you follow their teaching and you get saved. And Peter says, no, it's only through Jesus. This will be offensive to the Romans when Paul takes this message that Jesus is the only way because they're a pluralistic society like ours. And the Romans had thousands of gods and as the Romans conquered different territory, they said, it's okay for you to have your God. Just don't claim that your God is the ultimate God and we're good. And the vast majority of people are like, that's fine. You have your God, we have our God. But the Christians said, no, only Jesus is God. There are no other gods. In fact, in Rome, they had a phrase, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And, and there would be inscriptions, Caesar is king of kings and lord of lords. And the Christian says, no, only Jesus. So, so you've probably felt that pressure in, in 21st century America. If I tell someone, look, there's only one way to be saved, the response might be that they don't want to talk to me anymore. They might not want to, uh, uh, we could ruin the friendship. I don't, want to, I don't want that to be uncomfortable. Because why? You're going to think, they're going to think that's arrogant. I mean, who are we to say, there, there's only one way to salvation? Isn't that arrogant? Aren't there billions of people that are faithful followers of their gods across the world? And we say, no, only Jesus? Well, first of all, this is not our claim. This is Jesus' claim. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, is that arrogant for Jesus to say it? Well, it would be. If it wasn't true, if this is just a matter of subjective truth, like what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me, then that's arrogant. Kind of like me if I was to stand up and say, chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream. Many of you would be like, amen, but you'd all be like, that's kind of a weird statement. And we've moved religious claims into that category. Well, you have yours and I have mine, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making an objective truth claim. Now, either it's true or it's not. If it's true, then it's not arrogant to tell someone that. It's the most loving thing to tell someone. In fact, the ultimate arrogance is to know that, to have received that, and say, I'll keep that to myself. There should be an urgency. If, if God has delighted to reveal to you the, the gospel, then you, you have a mission, you have a spirit. There should be an urgency. But we need boldness, quite frankly. There's a cowardice that has descended on the church that God needs to change in us. There needs to be urgency. Paul will say this in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 10. Notice what he says about the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, he says, verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Pastor Tim Keller says this, uh, all truth claims are exclusive. It just so happens that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity out there. What he meant by that is the, 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 the claim of Christ is everybody's welcome. 
from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Everybody can come and find salvation, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter your racial status, no matter your educational status. The door is open through Jesus. But there's urgency. Look at verse 14. How then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Do you see the implication? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This should cause a gospel urgency in us. Listen, if we believe we have the truth, the the most humble thing we could do is to hold it out for people. You know, sometimes even those that aren't Christians understand this. You know, Penn, uh, Juliet, Penn and Teller, you know who Penn and Teller is? He recorded a video a few years ago. He's, a, he's an avowed atheist, but he gets it. Listen to what Penn says. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could go, be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. Listen to what he says. How much do you have to hate Somebody to not tell them what you believe is the truth that could save them. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Penn says, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was bearing down on you and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. I mean, if Penn gets that, how much more should we get that? You're like, well, when I talk to my atheist friends, they don't say that. (laughs) They just say that's arrogant. Nevertheless, salvation is found in no one else except the name of Jesus. And the mission is urgent. Look at verse 13. I love this because it, it invites all of us into the mission. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were uneducated common men. I, I love that. How do you see, look at someone and be like, that, that person's uneducated? I mean, is it their accent? Like, is he picking a wedgie out? I don't, I don't know. It's something about them like, these guys don't have it all together. They're just common men. They don't have our degrees. They don't have our social status. But they saw their boldness. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That, that could be any of us. So, so we've got to get out of this mindset that there are some Christians that do the work of the ministry and the rest of us, we're just going to get by and get into heaven eventually. No, it's an all play. You're all invited to be a part of it. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your education is. It doesn't matter anything about that. It just matters. Have you spent time with Jesus in such a way that you begin to look like him? They were like... This guy, these guys remind us of that Jesus guy we put to death a few weeks ago. And they were astonished. I, I love this because it, you should hear in it an invitation to make your life count forever. And, and isn't that what we all want? Deep down, even if you're not a believer here, I, I believe deep down you're like, man, I, I would like my life to count for something bigger than myself. Like, we, we all want it, and yet we settle. We settle for, for what the world says. Just be content with the American dream, and if you get that, that's enough. But deep down, you know there's more. 
Last week, I, w- I went out to coffee with one of you, and uh, you said, you know, I've, I've learned a lot. I just feel like I've been in the dugout. I'm ready to get in the game. I said, amen, get in the game. If you've been with Jesus, he invites you to get in the game. I remember when I was a little kid, I, I got to go to a, a Broncos game at the old Mile High Stadium. I was like seven, eight years old, and I was just in awe of, of that moment. But there was something in me in that moment. I was like, I mean, I'm, seven, I'm delusional, right? But I get it. Uh, but I'm like, man, it would be so cool if they came into the stands right now and, and took me out and put some pads on me and put a helmet on me, and I got to get in the game. That would be amazing. And you're like, that's insanity. And I'm like, yes, but it spoke to something deep in me. Like, I, I want to be in in the game. And the same is true with the, the, the mission of God. Like you're all invited. And it's in, in a sense, it's like the seven-year-old getting in the NFL game. But, but the thing is, the seven-year-old you gets in the game and you get the Holy Spirit in you. And now you're, you're the best player on the field because it's his work and not yours. You were made for a mission. You were made for your life to count. You, you weren't made to make a, a name for yourself, but the name for Jesus. Andre Agassi, a famous tennis player in the 90s, he won eight Grand Slam championships. So he held the the, the trophy above his head eight times. And in his biography, he says, I hate tennis. I've always hated tennis. And whether it was the money or or the the trophies, the, the, the joy never lasted. But there was one time in his whole biography about him playing tennis, he says, one time I was deeply satisfied. 1996, in Atlanta, the Olympics. He said when he won the gold medal in that moment, he had so much fun, so much joy. He didn't get paid for it. He didn't get anything. He just knew. Why? Because he was living for something bigger than himself. He's like, I won for something. Not for me. This was for my country. And if Agassi could feel that way for his country, can't we as followers of Christ feel that way for the kingdom of heaven when God uses us for eternal purposes? You're invited and you're equipped. The Spirit delights to empower us for gospel boldness. I love verse 14. As they're gathered here in this trial, very serious, serious moment. But verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So you got Peter and John tied and very solemn, very kind of serious moment. Are they going to sentence them to death? And I just, I mean, this is just, this not in the text. I just imagine that guy who who's, was healed the day before, he's in the background like Forrest Gump. Hey guys, look at this. <laughs> Like just dancing around and, and they're like, oh, we can't, we can't say anything with this guy hopping around. And so they're, they're, they like have to confer and they're like, well, we, we got to let him go because, you know, obviously God did something here. And so let's just warn them. Let's just tell them, hey, stop talking about Jesus. So they try that route and Peter's like, mm, God, no, I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. And they're like, no, we're, we're going to kill you. Uh, okay. And they let him go. So the first thing we see is the Spirit delights to empower gospel faithfulness. Look at verse 23. The next thing we see is the Spirit delights to use means to that end. We'll see some means. We see this a lot in the Bible, but the Spirit loves to use three things. The people of God, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God for the mission of God. People of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends Who's their friends? Their friends are the church. 
They, they went to the church and, and, and they've just been released and they go and they tell what happened and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They began to pray. This is one of the very first prayers we have recorded of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and I want you to notice something, how they pray and what they pray. This is a model for us. If you lack boldness, if you, if you lack uh, just the courage to stand for Christ, then let's learn from them in this moment because the Spirit delights to use means. Look how they pray. They're going to spend seven verses praying. The first five verses, so five-sevenths of their prayer, is simply going to be praying to God about God. What are they doing there? They're reminding themselves together in prayer of what's ultimately true that they're getting a clearer vision of what's ultimately right and true in their prayer. Look at what they say. Sovereign Lord. They just start right away. God, you're sovereign. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules in the universe. You're in control of everything, God. So, so we can rest in that right away. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the creator of everything, God. And then they turn to Scripture and they begin to pray Scripture back to God. They pray Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, verse 25. For through the mouth of, your father, of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers that were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're seeing in Scripture a fulfillment of Psalm 2. It's this picture of, uh, of the nations raging against God. And, he, and they're, they're putting the Israelite leaders in that category. And, and they stop at verse 3. But if they would have kept going in verse 4, it says, uh, God sits on his throne in heaven and laughs. All these nations raging against God. And God's like, that's cute. That's cute. And they're just in prayer. They're reminding themselves of what's ultimately true. But they up it even more. Look at what they say in verse 17. Or 27, sorry. Uh, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're talking about Jesus' arrest, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion, and his death. They're, They're reminding God, they're reminding themselves of what happened to Jesus. And then look what they say. To do... Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is amazing. They're just saying, hey, the most wicked act in all of history was not an accident, God. You orchestrated it among all these wicked men who are responsible for our greatest good and your greatest glory. God, if you can do that with Jesus and his death and his burial and resurrection and being in control of all of it, our situation's nothing. Like, it's no problem because we know that you're sovereign. Like, that verse would make Calvinists blush. Like, it is just, God, you, you, you controlled the death of Jesus for your glory. So you can, you can handle our problem right now. Verse 29, and now that they ask two things of the Lord. Again, what would you ask for in that moment? I think we'd all ask, hey, God, can you take away the persecution? That, that'd be a good first step. Just get rid of that because we liked it before. That's not what they ask. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. 
Again, I, I just think we as a church, as fall, like this is a model for us. When, when was the last time you got on your face and just said, God, I need boldness? Lord, I believe you want to use me in my family's life. You want to use me in my neighborhood. You want to use me at work. You want to use me with strangers. But, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they'll think of me. And so, God, please grant me boldness this week. So they ask for boldness, and then they ask for a second thing. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They say, give us boldness, number one. And two, would you just do whatever it takes to prepare people's hearts and minds to receive the gospel. If it means bringing supernatural healing, Lord, do that. If it means just bringing circumstances in people's lives so that will prepare them for the gospel, do that. They're, at, they're not afraid to ask God to, to show up in such a way that it's evident that God is at work. And we should do the same. So we should be asking for boldness and then we should be saying, God, would you show up in power? As we go out, would you prepare the people to receive this good news? Would you plead with God like that? And again, because the Spirit delights to empower gospel faithfulness, look at verse 31. God answers, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. In the Bible, when, when God shows up, there's often an earthquake and, and people are terrified, but something's changed now. Though the place is shaken, the people are not. They're strengthened. They're emboldened. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. So they asked for it, and then they walked, for, walked in it. I mean, that's the, the greatest ap application any of us could have. Let, let's, in faith, ask God for boldness, and then let's walk in boldness. And I'm guessing you, you know even right now there's areas of your life where God is asking you to walk in boldness. There's relationships, there's circumstances, and you have not, but good news for you, the Spirit delights to empower boldness. So let's ask Him for it. Let's be a people that expect it. Let's ask Him to show up in miraculous ways if need be to prepare the hearts and minds of people that we would go to. Let's be a people that pray together for this. Let's, be, let's enter into our gospel communities and kind of and expect God to be working in each other's lives throughout the week so that when we get together, we can talk about it. So how, how is the boldness going? And sometimes we'll do well and sometimes we won't, but we can continue to come together and ask God for boldness. I have a friend, he uh, was a missionary in Pakistan. Of course, he couldn't say I'm a missionary in Pakistan because he would be killed, but as he came back, he, he, he was a professor uh, uh, in one of the universities there. Uh, that's how he got into the country. And, and eventually, he, he had found two or three Pakistani believers, and he began to gather with the people of God, and, and they, would, they would pray together, and they would ask for boldness. And, and so one week, he just felt like God was putting it on his heart to share the gospel with the chief of security of the campus, who was a full-bearded, uh, I, I don't know what you call him, but, but a serious Muslim. And so he knew that there was a great risk for him to even say the name of Jesus, let alone say Jesus is God's son. But he said, he came to his, his brothers and he just said, hey, I just feel like God is calling me to this. Will you pray for me? And at first they were like, uh, okay, <laughs> you sure you want to do that? 
He's like, yeah, I want to do it. And so they're like, okay. So they prayed, prayed for him, prayed for boldness. And he went out and he said during the next week, uh, uh, an opportunity came where he just had a moment with this chief of security there. And he felt like the spirit was saying, this is that moment. It's time to step up. And he didn't. He, he, he chickened out. And so he went back the next week and his, his friends were like, hey, we pray for you. Did, did, did you. did you share the gospel with them? And he told them the story and they laughed they're like, well, that's okay. Let's pray for you again. And I did. They prayed, God, give him boldness, fill him with your spirit, give him an opportunity. And next week comes, opportunity comes, and he shares the gospel with this guy. The guy didn't become a Christian, but he didn't kill him either. So that's a win in, in my book. And so uh, he walked in boldness, and the spirit empowered him. What if we just kind of had that expectation of one another? What if we believed God that he is sovereign over all and that he delights to give his spirit for the purpose of gospel boldness and we just kind of had that expectation when we saw each other. So, so what God, what's God calling you to? How's that going? Let's pray for you in that. What if we as a church took this seriously? What if we looked at our first brothers and sisters and said, God, will you do in us what you did in them if we did what they did and, and got on our face and prayed? The question I think that, that I confront every week and I think of in myself, like, do I just want to play church? Or do I want to look at these pages and say, man, I was made for something bigger than myself. And I'm afraid to do it in myself. Good news, you don't have to. The Spirit delights to empower gospel boldness. To that end, let me pray for us now. And pray for each of you, and, 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 and even now, right now, you're going to have an opportunity to think about where God is calling you to be bold. In Ephesians 6, 19, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, pray for me that I may declare the gospel boldly as I should. If Paul can ask for, for prayer for boldness, how much more every one of us in this room? So let's be a church that isn't afraid to ask. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you now in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. You are the sovereign one, O Lord. You are the maker of heaven and earth. The nations rage against you and you laugh because you sit on your throne. Lord, this week we will look back at the time when the nations conspired to kill your Son. And we're reminded that that death was for us in our place. And that you orchestrated that for your glory and for our eternal joy. And so that every other circumstance that is faced in this room this week, every other circumstance that you are in control of and you offer us power by your spirit to walk in that. Lord, please make us a church that asks for power and walks in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.